Please turn in your Bibles to our text for this morning found in the book of Daniel, chapter 4. This morning, we'll return to our study, spiritual living in a secular world. So far in Daniel, we have studied chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, it's been some time since we studied chapter 3, but you remember that we learned about Nebuchadnezzar and the image that he had erected. After commanding all of his leaders to bow and worship the image, he personally witnessed a supernatural intervention by the one sovereign God who can protect completely. He saw three of his wisest administrators refuse to compromise their faith and instead face a deadly consequence, to be tied up and thrown into a fiery furnace. He witnessed not only their survival, but he saw that they were totally untouched by the flames. And they were also accompanied in the furnace by a supernatural being. And so now we come to Daniel chapter 4, where we see an interesting change. Part of this chapter was written by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, of course, records it accurately under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. This part of the book was written in about the 35th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So this account takes place about 25 years after that incident in the fiery furnace in chapter 3. Daniel, now in his 40s. What does this account in verses 1 through 3 seem to indicate about Nebuchadnezzar? Well, this is a declaration of praise to the one true God. Some believe this is an account of the conversion experience of Nebuchadnezzar. The chapter ends with the same note of praise offered to God. The thought expressed here is similar to what we read in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And so we can wonder, what brought about this remarkable change? Let's see now as the story begins in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. The phrase at ease means he is at rest. He's free from apprehension and fear. He has no worries and his kingdom is secure. Nebuchadnezzar says he was flourishing. He uses a word picture here. That word literally means growing green. He says he's prospering. And it's interesting that he uses this horticultural metaphor, especially since later he recounts his dream about a tree. In verse 10, Nebuchadnezzar was a great builder, and one of his greatest achievements was his palace, a place that Daniel was no doubt familiar with. Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar, had constructed his palace out of crude bricks, but the water level of the nearby Euphrates River rose and weakened the foundation. In a, an inscription found in the ruins of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar describes how he rebuilt the palace in greater grandeur. 
As I read it, I want you to notice how many times he uses the first-person singular personal pronoun in this brief account. I tore down its walls of dried brick and laid its cornerstone bare and reached the depth of the waters. Facing the water, I laid its foundation firmly and raised it mountain high with bitumen and burnt brick. Many cedars I caused to be laid down at the length for its roofing. Door leaves of cedar overlaid with copper, thresholds and sockets of bronze I placed in its doorway. Silver and gold and precious stones, all that can be imagined of costliness, splendor, wealth, riches, all that was highly esteemed, I heaped up within it. I stored immense abundance of royal treasure within it. Archaeologist Robert Coldway began large-scale excavations of Babylon in 1899, and he continued uninterrupted for 18 years, uncovering significant parts of the city, including Nebuchadnezzar's palace. The main southern palace was trapezoidal in shape and was constructed around five large courtyards. The city of Babylon itself was surrounded by a system of double walls, comparable to a six-lane highway. Some say it's 85 feet high. That's like an eight-story building. The top of the wall was used as a roadway for chariots and for rapid troop movements. There were eight gates, each named for a Babylonian god. The Ishtar Gate opened onto what was called the, the processional way, the main thoroughfare of the city. It was an elaborately ornamented street that led to the Temple of Marduk, one of the 50 temples in the city. The gate was constructed of baked, glazed bricks and depicted oxen and dragons in an alternating pattern. In an inscription discovered at the gate, we again see Nebuchadnezzar boasting about his accomplishments. I dug out that town gate. I grounded its foundations facing the water, strong with bitumen and baked bricks, and caused it to be finally set forth with baked bricks of blue enamel on which wild oxen and dragons were pictured. Wild oxen of bronze and raging dragons I placed at the thresholds. The same town gateways I caused to be made glorious for the amazement of all peoples. The processional way continued that beautiful blue glazed brick motif and was decorated with the relief of lions, the symbol of Ishtar. Nebuchadnezzar also built a 400-foot-high mountain terraced with flowing water and gardens as a gift for his wife. She was from Media, and she missed seeing the green mountains of her home. The so-called hanging gardens of Babylon were included in the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So let's keep this in mind when we get near the end of the chapter. Nebuchadnezzar now continues in verse 5. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay in my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. That word fearful here means a bit more than being anxious. The root word here means to crawl, to slink away in fear, or to cower. So he is really afraid. In fact, he is alarmed. That word alarming comes from a root word that means to tremble inwardly or to terrify. Now, this is deja vu for Nebuchadnezzar. This is not the first time that he's had an upsetting dream. And so what does he do? Whom will he call for help? Verse 6 tells us, So I gave orders 
to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. He calls all of the wise men. Now, we have to wonder, is he a slow learner? Does he have a poor memory? Can these wise men help him? No, they can't. And haven't we seen this before? Verse 8. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him. Well, Daniel finally comes in, and his Babylonian name is used here, since Nebuchadnezzar is writing to a Babylonian audience. And note how Daniel is described. Nebuchadnezzar calls him one in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. This is an important point. The statement about Daniel's God is in sharp contrast to the Babylonian gods who were considered to be vile beings. Nebuchadnezzar knows that there is a holy God and that his spirit was in Daniel. And this is a testament to Daniel's character and conduct. Verse 9. O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. So here Nebuchadnezzar is recalling his past experience with Daniel. And note, he acknowledges that Daniel could even tell him the content of the dream as well as its interpretation. He might have said, well, Daniel, I know you already know. He identifies Daniel as the chief of the magicians or scholars. Now, if Daniel is the chief, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes his God-given abilities, why wasn't he called first? Well, it is something to wonder about. But from this account, we know for sure that all of the others had their opportunity, and they failed. No one else could interpret the dream. Verse 10. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed. I was looking, and behold... There was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. So here we see the description of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar sees this great tree visible to the ends of the earth. Its foliage is beautiful. Its fruit is abundant. It provided food and protection for all. The tree represents Nebuchadnezzar after the year 605 B.C. And the creatures in verse 12 are his subjects. Verse 13, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. So here we see a reference to an angel, a servant of God, who controlled a nation's rise or fall. In Scripture, we sometimes see angels as God's instruments of judgment. The angels in Genesis 18 were on their way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In Isaiah 37, we see that the angel of the Lord intervened and destroyed the Assyrian army. And in Revelation 16, angels are commanded to pour out God's wrath upon the earth. The narrative of the dream now continues in verse 14. 
He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. So what's the significance of leaving the stump? Well, it means that the tree is still living. So Nebuchadnezzar will survive. And the significance of the bands of iron and bronze? This is God's guarantee of a fence of protection around him. The kingdom will be restored to Nebuchadnezzar. And did you notice the use of the pronouns, his and him in verse 15? This tells us that the tree represents a man. Verse 16. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. That word mind used here is a word that represents the sum of all the cognitive processes that determine one's actions. It's sometimes translated by the word heart. It literally means the inner man, the mind, and the will. And the seven periods of time are seven years. Seven was symbolic in the ancient Near Eastern culture uh, and literature. It conveyed a sense of fullness or completeness. And so with that in mind, let's look at the next verse then, verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliness of men. What's the purpose of this statement? You will remember that woven throughout our study in the book of Daniel is the theme that God is sovereign. So here's that important theme again then. God is sovereign. It's clearly stated even before the dream is interpreted. God is the one who appoints kings and rulers. Now, this is quite a contrast to what we see of Nebuchadnezzar's boasting in verse 30, where he says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Remember our discussion about his great building projects? The events of this chapter all happen likely during his reign sometime between the years 573 and 562 B.C., And if this is the case, then Nebuchadnezzar's boasting about his building accomplishments in that inscription from the Ishtar Gate reflect his proud words here. Can you recall other passages of Scripture with a similar message to what the angelic watchers declare about God's sovereignty here? 1 Chronicles 29 says, Yours, O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created, 
both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. In Revelation 19, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible clearly teaches this truth about God's sovereignty. But the question that I must ask myself this morning is, do I really believe this? Or do I only pay lip service? Do I talk a good game? But does my walk match my talk? And how would I know? Do my thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions reflect the life of someone who bows the knee, who worships and obeys the one sovereign God? Or do I think or say, like Nebuchadnezzar, is this not great, which I myself have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? In verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar now asks for the interpretation of the dream. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. And what is Daniel's reaction? He is appalled. The Oxford Dictionary defines appalled as greatly dismayed or horrified. The root word here is desolated. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Notice Daniel doesn't speak until the king encourages him to do so. He was a compassionate man. He could have been bitter and resentful, and he could have thought, well, finally, Nebuchadnezzar is getting just what he deserves. Instead, his restraint indicates that he cared about his king. Daniel now explains Nebuchadnezzar's latest dream in verse 20. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king. So Daniel's pretty direct here. He says, it's you. Verse 22. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. The condition described here has been called lycanthropy, from the Greek words leukos meaning wolf, and anthropos meaning man. This is a delusion in which a person thinks that he is an animal and lives like one. In 1946, a patient in a British mental institution was described with this condition. He spent the winter outdoors living without a coat, and his hair and fingernails were exactly as is described here in Daniel. And now Daniel gives the interpretation, verse 24. 
This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you'll be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Talk about learning a lesson the hard way. This is the ultimate humiliation for the king of the Babylonian Empire. And what's the lesson to be learned? God, not Nebuchadnezzar, is sovereign. But Daniel is also able to give some encouraging news, followed by a heartfelt appeal to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 26, And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity." Now, a question may come to mind here. What's the difference between sin and iniquity? 1 John 3, 4 gives us perhaps the best definition of sin that there is in the Bible. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sins are offenses. The root word means to miss the mark. So it's like shooting an arrow at a target, and you not only miss the bullseye, you miss the target altogether. In fact, your arrow falls far short, just as we all fall far short of the glory of God. To sin, then, is to commit an offense against God by despising Him and His law. Iniquity comes from a root word meaning crookedness. It means to bend, to twist, or to distort. So iniquities are a bending or a twisting or a distorting of the law or God's word. Iniquity is perverseness, wicked acts, and immoral conduct that are harmful or offensive to society, but especially to God. The Bible tells us that we have all committed offenses against God. We have despised Him and broken His law and committed iniquity. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. In Psalm 106, the psalmist admits, We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. In Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so everyone can benefit from Daniel's advice in verse 27. Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to repent and change his ways. He calls for the king's repentance marked by a change in his behavior. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar had, in fact, repented, what do you think would have happened? Well, consider these verses. First of all, Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you remember what happened in Nineveh after Jonah delivered God's message of impending judgment? Jonah 3.10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so what happens? 
How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? One year goes by. Nebuchadnezzar has had ample time to think about his dream, the interpretation that Daniel had given him, and also Daniel's plea for repentance. But nothing happens. Why not? What was the root cause of the sin of Nebuchadnezzar? Pride. As we have noted, Nebuchadnezzar was known for his great building projects. That's what he was boasting about. But do you also remember his boast in Daniel chapter 3, verse 15? What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? The root of his sin is pride. What is pride? Well, the dictionary gives us two good definitions. First, a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in bearing conduct, etc. Second, believing that you have done what God and others have done for you. Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Notice in Mark 7 that pride is included in the list of things that defile us. That word defile comes from a root word that means impure or unclean. But there is a solution to this defilement. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. He explains to the Galatians in Galatians 2 how we can be justified. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Simply put, to justify is to declare righteous. Justification is an act of God whereby he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that repentant sinner's faith in Christ. We are justified by faith. Romans 3.27 says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. To have faith is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus says in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what Paul told the people of Athens in Acts 17, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. To repent is literally to change one's mind, to feel and express sincere regret or remorse for one's sin, marked by and accompanied by a change in behavior. To repent is to recognize that I have despised and offended the holy, sovereign God of the universe the creator of the universe. 
Notice what David says in Psalm 32. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And again in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, what could hinder or stand in the way of someone's repentance? Pride. Pride is the sin of sins. It was this sin which we see in Ezekiel 28 that transformed Lucifer, an anointed cherub of God, the very seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, into Satan, the devil, the father of lies, the one for whom hell itself was created. We are warned in 1 Timothy 3 to guard our hearts against pride, lest we too fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. One commentator says this, and I quote, The sin of pride is a preoccupation with self. It is thus very fitting that the middle letter in the word is I. Pride is all about me, myself, and I. So even as the word pride is centered upon an I, the sin itself is also centered upon I. We read of Lucifer's fall in Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And you obviously notice the use of that first person singular personal pronoun again. Satan's enmity against God began with I, and so it is with us. To be preoccupied with self is to suffer from the sin of pride. Scripture has much to say about pride. One of the best-known passages is Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So let's keep this in mind then as we return to our text and notice what comes next for Nebuchadnezzar in verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way that God, not he, was sovereign. After seven years of correction and instruction were complete, Nebuchadnezzar had learned his lesson. He finally looks up to God in heaven and recognizes his sovereignty instead of looking down at earth and himself in his pride. Verse 34, 
But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Only after Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself does his sanity return, as well as his kingdom, just as the sovereign God said that it would. Verse 36, At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. And then finally, then, we see Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. After Nebuchadnezzar's death, all kinds of political intrigue took place in the kingdom, with different ones scheming and vying for the throne. But while he was alive, even in this terrible condition, there were no challenges to his throne. Why not? Because God protected him. This is another, yet another example of God's sovereign rule. This morning we have read of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, his demise, and his restoration. We've read what the Bible says about the need for repentance. And we've examined how it is only by God's grace through faith that we are justified so that we may, we may be forgiven and cleansed from our sin. A Christian, a believer, is one who has humbled himself or herself before God, repented of their sin, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, not in their own good works or accomplishments. But after reading this account this morning, a practical question should come to the mind of all those who are believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. What can we do to protect ourselves against the sabotage of pride? Well, two passages in Scripture give us some help and point us in the right direction. The first is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So then we can look into God's word to find his truth about battling personal pride. We can find at least six principles. First, we must be careful to give God all the credit. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's boastful statements about his accomplishments? As you recall them, consider what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, 
so that just as, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so we must begin then by recognizing God's sovereignty and giving him all the credit. Second, we must recognize God's gifts to us. What is the truth about your skills and accomplishments? Remember the attitude of Daniel and his three friends? They gave God all the credit for giving them knowledge and intelligence. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Third, we must depend on God's providence and recognize his sovereignty. In Luke 12, Jesus told the parable of the rich man who made plans for many years ahead to take his ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? James 4 says, Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Fourth, we must consider the truth of the gospel. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant who had been forgiven much in Matthew 18? Reading and considering this account helps to give us a proper perspective. Colossians 3.12 makes it very clear for us. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Fifth, we must have a servant's attitude and serve others. Philippians chapter 2 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And how do you know if you're in fact doing this or not? It's not simply that you serve others, because you can be proud of your service. Matthew 6, 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So how do you know if you have a servant's heart? Not by being a servant, but by your response when you're treated like one. Sixth, we must understand what true biblical greatness really is. Mark 10 says, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Let us not be like Nebuchadnezzar, who had repeated opportunities to humble himself before God, and yet he refused to recognize the one sovereign creator God. He had to go through seven years of correction and instruction before he learned his lesson. 
we have the truth of 1 Peter 5 to consider. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why would you choose to be opposed by the omnipotent, sovereign God when the alternative is to humble yourself and to receive his gift of grace? And so, what is the logical conclusion? Verse 6 goes on, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why would you choose otherwise? Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study this account from the book of Daniel this morning. Father, thank you for the truth that we find in it about your sovereignty and about our role in your universe. Father, help us to identify those areas of our lives where we had hidden sources of pride in ourselves. Father, help us to recognize that you alone are sovereign and that we are your servants. Help us to have the proper attitude as we live out our lives each moment in humility and in service to others. Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word, and we ask these things in the name of your Son, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.